I know you're into rocks. Are you into rocks? I've been collecting rocks since I was a little kid. I like crystals. Um, of course kids are drawn to rocks because it's there's so many ways that they can have that sensory input with them. Picking up shiny rocks and showing them off and putting them in a bag never to be seen again. That's basically my experience with rocks. You know, who doesn't like crystals and agates and anything shiny? Thanks for tuning in. Greetings! Welcome to our latest and greatest episode of Rockcast Podosophy. I'm your host, Rockrat, and I'm sitting here with a co-worker and friend... Sarah Hansen. Who is the deer specialist, statewide deer specialist, for the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Which is a pretty fancy title. It actually says, like, state deer biologist on the plaque outside your cubicle. It says statewide deer specialist because I didn't know what else to tell them because I'm the first one we've ever had. Why are you the first one you've ever had? Well, we had, so we had, it was combined. It was a deer and elk specialist. However, it turns out that when you're working in wildlife, um, it's really hard for a single specialist to cover multiple species, so um, my not-really-predecessor did mostly elk. So there wasn't really anyone focused on deer and deer management. We had a deer research biologist, Woody Myers, but he did mostly um, mostly research, um, and, and looking at his specialty was body condition and health. So, yeah, I'm the first one when our former deer and elk specialist took a promotion, they split that position into two. So that's why I am the first deer specialist we've had. That's exciting. I think it's, it's exciting. It's a lot of opportunity. It's also <laughs> a lot of work. Um, so this is Rock Ossipy Podcast, so I'm going to just break us in with, do you have any rock tales? Do you have any interest in rocks? Do you have any memories of picking up rocks as a kid? Do pocket rocks mean anything to you? You can all listen to the squeaking of my folding chair. Pocket rocks, like putting the rocks in your pocket. And then just walking around. Um, that is my mother. Oh. Uh, no. So I'm a spatial ecologist, and I tend to go for things that are much larger and move faster. <laughs> it may just be a patience thing. <laughs> but... Uh, my undergrad degree is in environmental studies, and part of that is geography and geomorphology. So where I interact with rocks is at the landscape scale and how they form the base for habitat and vegetative structures that you see sitting on top of that. That's why I think rocks are fascinating. And I also partially grew up, so I'm from Kansas, and but I moved... Uh, to California when I was five, so I split my time back and forth between those two, but I did all of my training in Southern California with earthquakes. So when you live in Southern California and you're a little kid and you do all of the earthquake training when you're in kindergarten, I can get very quickly under a table. This has been tested during the Virginia earthquake. Um, it was in 2012, 2013, maybe. I was the only one that went under the table immediately because I knew exactly what that was. <laughs> and it was because of Mrs. Lang in the kindergarten. That is why I got under there. All because of rocks. See? That's brilliant. Did it protect you at all? Were you the lone survivor of the blank? Um, well, if the giant wall of glass next to us had blown out, yes. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, so I think most people didn't 
realized that that was an earthquake. And I was literally under the table looking at my friend. We were at a, um, a chemical mobilization for wildlife training. So we had darts and all kinds of great stuff all around us. And that desk started moving. And I got under there. And my friend was like, what are you doing? I'm like, can I get this is an earthquake. We need to get under the table. And she's like, serious. No one else is doing that. I'm like, because we're in Virginia. <laughs> I'm not from Virginia. The earth is moving. That's bad. <laughs> we need to get under the table. And so after that, they had everyone walk out of the building. Um, and... People started checking their phones and checking all of this crazy stuff. And that night, like, I grabbed her and I pulled her away from the building. And we went and stood on this open, grassy area. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, Megan, we're going to go stand here. She's like, but no one else is here. Yes, but this is where you're going to be safe. I know this from kindergarten, man. We had all of the safety gear. Those um, emergency trainings, those the earthquake drills are taken very, very seriously in California because it actually matters. Um, I mean, when the fault slips. Right. So uh, my family lives right on the San Andreas. That's where I was living, right on the San Andreas Fault in the San Gabriel Mountains. That's why they exist. Um, yeah. So I was there during the Northridge quake. That moved a lot of stuff. Knocked a picture off the wall, hit me in the head, cats running around, water's flipping out of the pool, dogs are freaking out. My brother, my little brother slept through it all. But, uh, yeah, I pulled Megan away onto the hill, and she's like, no, still, this is strange. I'm like, I don't care. This is my training since very young, and I'm going to keep you safe. And that night, watching on the news, they said, nobody realized that it was an earthquake, so... Nobody really did the appropriate things. And she looked at me and she's like, you were right. You're not very good at this. I'm like, well, Megan, that's why you have me. You're welcome. I will keep you safe. <laughs> From the random earthquakes in Virginia during the chemical mobilization training. Which, that phrase in itself, for, for our listeners, I apologize for the squeaky ceiling. There's something I can do about it. Um... For people who are not wildlife biologists, it sounds like a terrifying experience, but we're not here to talk about wildlife biology unless you want to talk about it. But, but it's all going to the rocks and how they interact. But yeah, geomorphology um, is how the larger landscape was formed, how mountains formed, how river valleys formed, even the Grand Canyon, cut points, massive erosion in a flash... All of that great stuff is why even we are here in Washington and we have the Channel Scablands. Hell yeah! Everything that is happening just a few miles away from us is because of massive scale geomorphology. We got basin and range extension. We got volcanoes. We got the Pacific Rim. Like, what do you want? We got Yellowstone with a super volcano and we're right on the edge of where that would hit. Yeah, when the batholith does go... So my interaction with rocks is at a very large scale, but again, I like things that are big and move, because technically now I'm I'm a big game spatial ecologist. Ooh. I'm going to circle back just a second um, before we move on to ask what the difference between being a deer and elk specialist and being an ungulate specialist is. So ungulates are hooved mammals. Okay. It's like a lot of stuff. Naturally. 
Um, and ungulates can include game and non-game species. So I used to work most of, well, not most of it, but a lot of my background, it's probably going to be half, is non-game. So I used to work on some of the most endangered species on the planet. So John? Channel Islands, Island Fox. Woo! Right. So I was one of the last biologists working on the captive breeding before we declared them recovered and set them all free. So yeah, I went from that to working on a whole lot of game species. Um, but for ungulates, that's hooved mammals, um, you can have game species and non-game species depending on where you are. Washington is particularly interesting because we have a state endangered species, the Colombian white-tailed deer, which is probably one of the only populations of white-tailed deer on this continent that you cannot hunt. Oh, right. Um, but they're trying to bring them back. But yeah, that's interesting. So I see the reports, but I don't have to interact with them because I'm in the game division. I'm like, well, I'm the deer specialist, but only if you can hunt them. <laughs> Which is pretty funny coming from, again, I work game and non-game. I've done ton of deer, turkeys, raccoons, wolves. Bobcats, songbirds, desert tortoise, what else? Western gray squirrels. When I was 23 years old, that was one of my first internships here in Washington in Clickitat. Why in God's name do they have an internship for Western gray squirrels? Because they're state-threatened. Oh, is that because they're so much bigger than the ones we have in the Midwest? Oh, well, those are a different species. The Western grays are a whole lot bigger, but they also predominantly use oaks as their natal dens. That's what makes them special, especially here in Washington. We do have one population up in the Methow in the North Cascades, right along the Canadian border, which I now do deer surveys in. But every time I drive through Twist, I'm like, this is where the other squirrel site was. The one I never got to see. There are weird squirrels that live under us right now. They use uh, stick pine nests. So that's how that population has been able to persist because there aren't very many oaks left in a whole lot of places. They're highly valuable for timber, so we're doing actively a lot of conservation. And actually, the mule deer are now, the conservation work that I do with the mule deer is dovetailing quite nicely with quite a few of the endangered species and threatened species, federally and state within the state. It's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's bringing it all together. <laughs> Big picture stuff. Big picture! Things that move. <laughs> So, you were 23 when you took the gray squirrel internship. Yeah. How long would you say you've been doing wildlife work? 20 years. 20 years. I count it when I got my first internship. As do I. As do a lot of us. And that was bandolier, elk, well, the title of the internship was elk habitat study. Um, what it ended up being was... Kilometers and kilometers of vegetation transects. I got very good at botany and grass ID the year before I took botany. I aced that nice. so well. I was like, well, I was forced to do this for three and a half months straight. I did nothing but go on my hands and knees along, along a transect with a tape. It was literally like kilometers on my hands and knees, looking at every centimeter of vegetation. Be it a burnt stump, because the Cerro Grande fire had gone through. There was a huge fire in New Mexico. This was a bandolier. Um, like, 
year or two after that. So half of our study sites had been burned to a crisp. So those were really easy, but you could tell by the basil rosette, the scorched basil rosette, what species it was. So we were at least able to document what had been there, um, going all the way up to the high alpine areas where you had the aspens, which was part of the point of the study was looking at the um, aspen growth and how the elk were because they were protected on private land and also protected within the park service. There were a lot of elk. Um, that's now what is called the Via Caldera Nat- National Monument. I think it's the National Monument now. So that's now open. So I was out there before it became a national monument. And it was still the private ranch. That was freaking amazing. But yeah, these elk were not hunted. And that's one of the things is um, providing some of that population pressure where you don't have a whole lot of natural predators. They were pretty much destroying all of the aspens simply because that was their best food. Mm-hmm. So you were getting into these areas where these aspen seedlings were just being mowed down. Like literally nothing was growing for years and years and years. And the Park Service started to get pretty concerned about <laughs> the aspen stands that used to be substantial were now getting mowed down. Um, and the ones that were left... Um, my, my boss at the time used to describe it as they looked like they were, the trees were picking up their skirts and running away into the forest <laughs> because of the browse line of the elk, it was well above your head. So you're looking at all of these, even pine trees during the winter, they had mowed everything that they could get to because there were so many elk that like all of the understory had been raised up to the level of the height of an elk head. Yeah, so that's why they were doing that study, um, and that's when I started. Didn't realize how much vegetation that was, and I had been considering vegetation ecology, and after three and a half months of that, I decided that it was great, it was valuable, I wasn't going to do that for my life's work. Grasses are cool, sedges have edges, and rushes <laughs> around. <laughs> but I need something that moves faster than a blade of grass. Such as deer. Such as deer and almost anything else. Wind dispersal. I mean, there's movement. Oh, yeah, no, the wind dispersal. Like, what are the three functions of habitat management? Wind, water, and poop? Well, that too. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are. I think those are. Anyway, Neusels, I'm sitting here with, uh, on page 16 of the Wildlife Professional, which is a wild, the Wildlife Society, a TWS publication. And before we got down to our interview, you had me flip through it, and I, it's funny, listeners, I was just like, I don't know what I'm looking for, and Sarah's just like, yeah, no, you'll know it when, when you see it. And I was like, I don't know, I'm mad at picking up cues, and then I get you a thing, I get you a page, I get to page 16, and it's just a picture of her, right? <laughs> Do you, do you want to talk about this at all? 
I'm happy to talk about it. The reason, the reason, okay, so the reason, the Wildlife Professional is the the magazine of the Wildlife Society, which is the, the professional organization for all wildlife scientists and wildlife managers. Um, it's the dominant society, and I'm also the president-elect for the Washington chapter right now. The reason it was exciting to get that in there is, one, really? <laughs> when they, they emailed me, I was like, Really? <laughs> you know who I am? And then they're like, are you kidding? Are you, like, really? You did the Leadership Institute with us. Like, you know all of our staff. I'm like, well, yeah, but, I mean, but that's, like, the magazine. <laughs> so this is, like, like, this is cool because that goes out to the, is it four or 5,000 members of the Wildlife Society? That goes out to all of them? So, um... That was a little intimidating, but the, the reason that it's actually cool is because I was able to tell the story of not only the work that I've done over my career, but also the story of Washington and how much the field is changing and how much the culture is changing and how much work there still is to do. That was one of the highlights and just the fact that it was a direct line to speak to young professionals like I was 20 years ago coming up because we didn't have the wildlife professional that I can't even remember when they started, but there was nothing like that to even introduce new biologists to the field. And so the fact that they have a venue for profiling people and they contacted me, I was like, um, so there's one problem. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, so the interview's done. They're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but you're going to ask me for pictures. And they like, well, yeah. <laughs> so that was going to be, do you have any good pictures? And I was like, so problem. I am either running office support for our field people at this point because I coordinate across 17 districts, six administrative region, regions, and about 37 District wildlife biologist, I am not always the person in front. So I have pictures of everyone else. I'm usually the mission, air quotes, mission commander. So I'm the one, and that's what one of the photos is, is me and Camo in a snow pit, ready to hunker down so the deer can't see us when the helicopter comes to push them into the nets. I'm there with a radio telling people, they're in the nets, go now, or wave off, we have a problem. So they're like, but we need, you know, any pictures of you with deer? I'm like... There's one right here. Yeah, no. Um, Smiling with a giant unconscious deer in your lap. Mm, look closer. I know. Look closer. It's an elk. Yeah. Oh, okay. So the only picture I was able to provide them was me with an elk. And so I used to teach. Another picture. Right. And so that was our veterinarian, Kristen Mansfield, took that one. That was my first time out on the aerial captures with the state out there. That was um, before I realized that I was going to be in for three days of pouring rain. And this plant called Devil's Club which only grows on the west side um, and coastal, it's a devil's club is a very good description because it's four-sided, and each side, like a club, has claws. 
They're recurved, and they will grab onto you and your person and wrap it around your waist. And so when the pilot says, we're going to drop you off here, they darted the elk just downhill. So we're going to put you here. Just go downhill. So I started going downhill. And I got wrapped up, and I didn't realize at the time was one of the meanest uh, plants that's ever been um, evolved upon this planet because that was my best rain gear. Because, again, nobody told me about the Devil's Club, so I was stupidly out there in my own rain gear because I was like, no, I should probably stay dry. No, no, I got it wrapped around my waist. Like, by the time I got down to the capture site and busted out of the massive thick vegetation, <laughs> our district biologist there just looked at me and I was probably pretty wild-eyed. I had my capture pack and everything was ready, but I didn't see what had just happened happening because I was in the woods about a hundred yards from them yelling, I don't, I can't move. <laughs> I can hear you. I don't know what to do. Nobody gave me pruners. So, by the time I figured out how to get down there, I busted through it, and Eric Holman is like, whoa, she's not happy. <laughs> I don't even want to talk about it right now, you guys. Professionally, that was literally a hang-up. <laughs> and I've been doing this for a really long time, so my ego's bruised. I'm pretty sure there are holes in my best rain gear. I'm now soaking wet. That elk is down, and we still haven't gotten it processed. That's kind of pissing me off. And I'm a little afeard of what it's going to take to get back to where the aircraft can actually land. Um, yeah, so that was so that was that photo, and that's why I was like, "Oh look, there's actually an elk. <laughs> We're out of the trees." Yeah, so that's me smiling with an elk because that's the only picture that I have aside from one of me spooning with a deer, but that was a little too close up, and it's really hard to tell that it's me because I have my dad. I love. He outfits me. He got me from um, the Duluth Trading Company. Yeah. Um, right? So it's a felt hunter's cap, but what makes this unique is that it has a flap that will flip down around your ears. And that's totally normal because that's like a trapper hat. It has the visor. This one is made for women, and it has a ponytail hole in the back. Oh, my that. father was so proud of himself for sending that to me, and his wife was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, no, she needs that. Marlon, that thing is hideous. <laughs> it's my favorite color of green. It keeps my head warm. It has a visor. It goes around my ears, and there's a hole in the back for my ponytail. My father knows me well. And Good I job, love him. I, yes. Mm -hmm. So there is another picture of me in that hat spooning a deer. That's the only other one that I have. Why are you spooning a deer? Um, because I was physically restraining it after a capture. Wow. And you're still alive. That's Well, I do that for my living. Um, you just, you have to slide in with the pointy parts, like the hooves. Ungulate. Hooves, they're like knives. So you only approach when the pointy parts are pointed away. This is very important, and this is where all of the patience comes in. I did this incorrectly my first time ever trying to capture a deer in Wabash, Indiana. Pregnant doe, she nailed me right on top of the femur. Like, right as I slid in to go get her, we were drop netting, and I was like, wow, that is why you don't do that. I will never do that again. I have never done that again. Patience. Wait until the hooves are pointed away, and then you jump. But we can process them in about five minutes. Oh, cool. When you've got a good crew, they bring them in. You don't need to anesthetize them. 
Um, so that's the chemical chemical immobilization training that I was talking about before. Right. So when you have to drug them to sedate them so that they're safer to handle, that is one way to do it. But if you have a very experienced crew, a lot of times it's better for the animal to get it, work it up, get the collar on it, ear tags, measurements, blood, and get it out because you can do it in five minutes. Whereas if you're working with drugs, it's going to be 20 minutes at a very conservative to probably close to an hour, depending on how they respond to the drugs. So, yeah, with a good crew, grab them, spoon them. You can hobble them as well. That's another way to kind of um, make sure that everything is safe for everyone. But you can do it really quickly. Very good data. They are up and out, and they're like, wow, I hate you people. I'm like, yes, that's the attitude that we need. <laughs> Go forth and conquer. <laughs> Just don't come back. Yeah. No, and they, yeah. So, that's awesome. Yeah, it's fun. It's funny because as an ornithologist, um, the da- most dangerous animal that I have directly worked with um, was a goose. And the most drastic... They're animal. mean. So I have scars. I actually... So this this one right here from a goose, like the first time we were like, you know, handling yep. them. And I suddenly understood after that. I was like, this is why my advisor like has just... I mean, he looks like... I'm not trying to be insensitive, but he looks like a war survivor. I mean, he has, like, shallow, just, like, three-track cuts all over his You do it enough, yeah. So that um, goose banding is something that every biologist, if you come out of a a wildlife field, you're going to get that. I didn't come out of a out of a wildlife program. So um, I did environmental studies. We didn't have a wildlife program. It's probably a lot more employable. Um, They were all urban planners. Oh, geez. Um, But... I learned in Indiana when I was probably 24 or 25, but that was the thing. They were like, so if anybody here has never done this before, there you go. Um, It's definitely a rite of passage, and everyone should have to do that because those geese are, they can't fly, and they are still one of the most intimidating things. You're looking at it, and you're like, really? I I come out of a farming family, and I'm used to just, like, grabbing things, but, mmm. Man, those bills are razor sharp. They have edges. I don't think people respect the fact that those bills are serrated. Oh, yeah, I know. They have to clip the grass. And the spurs. Like, so you have a choice when you catch them. You can either control the feet and get the get the little the little nasty claws. Or you can go for the head. Well, we, we grabbed them from behind and took the, like, right up next to their torso where the wings met their torso and then you, you get a hold of them and then you tuck their head like football and then they just they just chill out yeah so i've heard that's how we did it but i have and yet still and yet still i have i went to i went i was teaching labs at that time i went to class to teach class and i tried to like cover it up with my rosary you know and people were looking at me because they saw like the three like longitudinal cuts on my forearm and they were from just those like, webby little claws of doom they were looking at me and i was like it's it's from a goose i'm not su- suicidal today. It's fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really funny because people thought, people thought I was in a bad place because I was banding with juice, but it was actually fantastic. And I do have a very distinct memory, like a mental image seared into my mind forever of like a goose just grabbing hold of Dr. Crumb's face. And he yep. was just, it just didn't even like shake its head. Like you expect like a dog or something, but it's just holding onto his cheek and he's just banding it. You know, he's just, like, he's done this because like, as if he's been doing it for 17 years, which been doing it for more than 17 years yeah. so no there's there's a certain amount of muscle memory and you just know what to expect and 
hopefully you're wearing sunglasses or some kind of eye protection. Because, uh, I mean, when I had one, so you tuck it between their legs, and one of the first geese that I was banding, and it was fine, the head was tucked in, but I looked over, and this big old male goose had his neck coming around. He wrapped it around that guy's leg and bit him on the ear, and all of a sudden there is, like, blood running down his head. And I'm like... Uh, that's not good. Like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, it's fine. I think that goose just took a piece of your face. Intentionally. It it sent a message to you and your kin. Oh, 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 yeah. No, there's mad respect. We had a couple of bios go out for their first time keys banding when they had first started with the agency. (laughs) I was like, all right, I want pictures and stories. And they're like, what do you mean? I want patience and stories. So when they got back about eight or nine hours later, oh, they were busted. Like, they were scratched. There's, like, blood. And, like, it wasn't, like, a lot of blood, but they definitely got into it. <laughs> they realized, and, like, there was, like, hair sticking out from underneath their caps. And I'm like, so how'd it go? And they're like, oh, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> Now you're a field biologist. Because <laughs> you got to do that at least once. And again, the things are flightless. Like, you've got them, but mm, that is a tenuous balance. They're such good parents. That's what I tell people. When I tell people that I studied geese in graduate school, their first question is, why do they poop so much? And I'm like, because they eat grass. Next question. And then they're like, why are they so mean? And I'm like, my mother calls them poopy machines. They're really good parents. And so, okay, I went when I they're got evil. They chased me on my bike. Hey. Hey, I got my master's degree. And also, that, that's how I got this job, actually. I met Matt Wilson on the, the geese banding. Because we were, yeah, I, I told you this, but, uh... No, I knew that before you got hired. Really? <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, yeah, they said that they were considering someone for a thing. Oh, that's cute, because I actually really enjoyed that, and I was talking to Matt, and I was the only person that wasn't a state biologist that was actually, like, wrangling the geese on site. That was noted. Oh! <laughs> Listeners, this is, I'm the first time I'm hearing this, and um, I'm touched, and that's incredible. Um, but I do remember that at some point I was like, I, I took their head under their wing, right? Because like that comes down, and I yeah. was just like, I would do that, and like in like typical truest and bluest form, I would just be like, I would talk to them and be like, see, that's not so bad. We don't have to be enemies. It's all right. We got the same goal here. And at some point, I remember Matt turning to one of the volunteers and being like, see how she's talking to it? I like that. That's that's good. That's good form right there. And I was just like sitting there being like, don't listen to him. This is a you and I moment. This is between you and I. This is between the goose and the Tory. Like, we got this. Rock has got you. We're fine. Um, and then, yeah. And then he was just like, I actually still have a piece of paper he wrote his name down on. Um, but yeah, so my, okay. I got sidetracked. But my point was that I went, so my entire crew went out to dinner with Jason Vance. Not Jason Vance. Um... Who's the, bio- who's the district biologist for the Tri-Cities area? Jason. His name's Jason. And he's a sweetie. And um, anyway, he worked with our crews two years in a row. But they all went out to dinner with them, and I had to go to Costco, and then I had to go home. And I went into Costco just covered in goose poop. Because that's what happens. Because they just crap on you. Yes. And I remember, that's like, what they do. Yeah, I walked right in. <laughs> I don't remember who said something. I don't even remember who because I was much more focused on either the geese or the conversation about the job. But somebody was just like, "You're you're going to go to Costco on the on the way home," 
And I, I looked down, and, like, I just saw, and they, they'd eaten, they'd gotten their hands on, like, some purple kind of berries, so their poop was oh, jet nice. black. And it was just streaks. I looked like a, like a, just like a survivor of something. Something horrible happened. <laughs> and I, I walked in Costco, and the Tri-Cities in Costco, do you know how many people asked me about it? Not a one. You know how many people made eye contact with me? Almost. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Yeah, because it's a farming area. Yeah, and it's fun. People come in looking like they're working hard. Yeah, it was so funny. Yeah. No, I did that um, when I was in Indiana, when I was working on raccoons and turkeys and deer. We used to have to walk the corn and bean fields to document damage because it was a crop depredation study. So we were looking at the damage caused by turkeys, raccoons, and deer. Because that's what they got in Indiana. So I'd have to walk these bean and cornfields. And my father, my, my, my Iowa corn farming family was extremely proud. Because that's how you learn when you're from Iowa. You go out and you detassel the corn. So, yes, my detassel when they've got the um, the pollen, the tassels on the top of the corn. You detassel them. Okay. It's a thing. Every teenager... Like, in corn country, that's what you do. You go pay them, like, nothing to go detassel the corn. Why do you detassel it? Um, well, now I'm going to have to remember. Uh, well, cause, because it's convention. That's how it's always been done. <laughs> uh, no, because it's part of the pollination process, and, and some of the problem with corn when they're naturally pollinated, and I may be getting this wrong, is that, so when you open up a, an ear of corn and it's white, there are no kernels growing on the top or parts of it. Mm. So each one of those silk strands that comes out, that is a direct line to a single kernel of corn. So the pollen has to hit one of those strands to pollinate each kernel. So when you detassel, I'm pretty sure that they were pollinating, all, making sure that they were completely pollinated. This is more, especially important for, because there's field corn, which most of the corn in this country is grown for animal feed. Hmm. Um, I thought it was grown for corn syrup, but maybe that's just media washing, brainwashing. Well, it, it is in part, but most of it is going to livestock. Hmm. By far and away. There's a ton of corn produced. We have a surplus. A lot of it, most of it's going for livestock, um, hog and cow feed. Uh, but then there's um, eating corn. There's sweet corn. So mm -hmm. sweet corn is the, it's usually a cash crop. So that's the stuff that you pull off on the side of the road and buy. That's the sweet corn. But for even the field corn, no, you break off the tassel, and it's to help pollinate all of the ears because um, it's a lower yield if each kernel isn't pollinated. Will it not develop fully? Or no, it won't. What so will it, what will it? pollen has to hit every single one of those silk strands. So what does it look like if it doesn't? It's just white. That's why when you um, test it in a lot of places with the higher-end corn, don't want you to open up the ears. That's why you'll see people um, at next time you go to the grocery store, watch watch people. I guarantee you that the older ones are going to be standing there, and I was doing it too. You pick it up and you pull open the top and you look at it. Yeah, that's what they're doing. That's awesome. Yeah, but it also dries out the ear. So it's not advised if you're, if they do a good job of pollinating and they have high quality corn, then you don't need to. Up at Walter's Farms up here, they really don't like it when you do that. Because they bring in their corn, I can't remember the farm. There's one sweet corn farm someplace out there. They have the best corn ever in the state of Washington. It's not the same as Iowa, but this is okay. <laughs> I am biased. My family are corn farmers. But, um, yeah, they have to be pollinated. 
or you're going to get a lower yield. So there's a lot of value in sending people out there to detassel. But I can't remember the process after that. I just remember detasseling. The whole part of that story, aside from crop yield, um, I was doing crop depredation, but I would have to walk the bean fields looking for plants that had been chewed on or otherwise destroyed or eaten by wildlife. So to do that, we had to walk. I mean, it was miles. So you're walking in between these rows of corn. Believe it or not, corn plants are not clean. They're covered in dirt, and each one of those leaves is like a machete. So I used to have to walk with my hands up on the back of my head so that my elbows were sticking out to stop the leaves from hitting me. I had uh, my ball cap on with sunglasses and a bandana over and up and under my sunglasses over my face. And so that's what I would walk. And I, I don't have that shirt anymore, but I had a white shirt. It was my fishing shirt from the last time I went deep sea fishing with my dad before I moved out there. But the armpits were disgusting because of all the dirt that was coming off the corn plants because I was walking with my hands on my head and my elbows out in front of me so that I didn't get sliced by the corn. Well, the point of this story is that I didn't realize it, but one of those leaves at some point had gotten down underneath the bill of my ball cap and in between my sunglasses and had cut me right between the eyes. So I didn't know this, and I am... Filthy, like I'm disgusting walking out of there, and I'm like, wow, I'm covered in about 500 yards of corn dirt. I go into this gas station, someplace near Peru, because it's not Peru, it's Peru, Indiana. Going up towards the farmhouse near Wabash. Well, I had to go to the bathroom. I wanted to get something to drink because it had been a really long day of walking cornfields. Because I was getting paid eight dollars an hour. Yeah. Um. But I walk into the gas station, and I go to go to the bathroom, and I had already, like, walked around, found some stuff, put it down, went to the bathroom, was washing my hands and looked in the mirror when I realized that the corn leaf had cut me between the eyes, and I had a perfect drip of blood running down my face to one side of my nose and most of the way to my mouth. <laughs> Like, I looked like a zombie apocalypse survivor. Like, there was blood and dirt, and they all looked at me. Nobody really said anything. They don't say anything, yeah. But this was small-town Indiana and a gas station, so they're used to, like, field workers, but they're not used to, like, people with, like, blood running across their face, especially, like, a younger female. And I'm like, I want this pop and the candy bar. And they're like, Okay. Give her the pop and the candy bar. Just let her go. <laughs> and of course, I got a Purdue truck outside, and they're like, those kids. I don't know what they're doing. Something with helicopters. They and There was a story going around about helicopters and us, and we found some pop plants, and there was drama. But, yeah, no, I know what you mean about um, showing up in places of business not looking cleanly. I mean, you get used to it, but also when you're around biologists, like, one of the reasons why I started the blog was because, like, I love talking to biologists, because we're all, like, we're on the same vibe, you know? Like, we, we have the same, like, you know what, like, it's got some dirt on it, like, you brush it off, it's fine, and then you go into, like, quote, civilized society with people that have, like, metropolitan jobs, and then they look at you like, are you going to eat that film on the floor, or, like, it's got dirt on it, and you're like, I have eaten things, let me tell you, <laughs> that have things on them and in them, I wake up half awake in, like, a weather port and feel a spider the size of, like, a quarter crawling up my stomach, and just brush it off, and then go back to sleep, because at least, you know, it wasn't a black widow. 
cow. You know? No, the standards are different. Yeah, uh, which is fine, because that's why we do what they do. Which leads me to this question, which is, why do you do this? I don't, I don't, sometimes I don't know. Oh. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have an explicit answer to that question. Um, well, all of my family are pretty much public servants of one stripe or another in some way. Um, I decided that I didn't want to go into military, and this was science and math it was something I was good at. This got me outside, and again, I like large-scale things that move quickly. I was like, well, that ticks all the boxes, and I'm doing some kind of public service, because ultimately the wildlife field, we do this on behalf of the trustees, which are the public of America. Which is true. Yeah. You gotta have your priorities as far as serving the public goes. That's, that's, I mean, that's essentially what the North American model is. Um, the wildlife is a public resource. It does not belong to private citizens. It belongs to everyone, and we are the guardians of that. That makes me very happy. So I can sit there doing math and science and know that I'm doing this in service for the public, whether or not they realize that or not. Even when angry people go on Facebook, when we have great articles that come out in the local papers about um, fawning season and how important it is to not snatch the babies, um, and someone like calls me out by name and tells me that I am the reason that there are no fawns surviving, it is epic. Um, yeah, Facebook, that's actually worth a giggle, but I mean, at least internally I know that the core reason that we're doing this job is for... <laughs> For the, the, the civic good and the public, and it also has that lovely, beautifully complimentary part where it is in direct service to the wildlife and fully supports and respects the ecosystem as it is. That, I mean, that's getting back to why I like that article was that was kind of what was running behind that is the people and the wildlife and even the rocks are all connected and respecting that system and respecting the fact that we still don't know everything about that system and that we are still learning about that system. That's a lovely thing. It is a lovely thing. And even though the picture is of me with an elk. Which my students, I mean, like I said, I was, I taught for a long time and my students who are totally on Facebook keyed into that one really fast. Before that even got published to the rest of the public, there was already a picture of that going, this is Sarah, I know her. Why is she with an elk? (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, John. That's, that's what we need to focus on. (laughs) That's exactly what I want you to get out of this. Next question, please. Why is Sarah with an elk? I thought she worked on deer. <laughs> Sarah works on lots of stuff. <laughs> We're all jacks of all trades. I mean, that's not true. If you're a fish person, you usually work on aquatic stuff. If you're a wildlife person, you work on stuff above the water. But yeah, like, terrestrial. You're yeah. still, like, unless you're marine. But, yeah, for the most part, it's, it's pretty jack of all tradesy. I think it's really great that you described the way you put your hands up to protect your head from the, the corn. Legitimately, I, I perfected that style, except it looked more like this. Like, my, my elbows were more, like, directly in front of my eyes when I was in uh, the Ozarks. Um, um, and I had, yeah, I had the, like, you, you tuck the... You tuck the bandana under the sunglasses. Yes. But you put the bandana on first, and then you snub the sunglasses right over them. Correct. Because if you don't, you'll either get cut up in the face, and then you'll look like you survived a bar fight. 
Uh, Which I did, yeah. <laughs> Basically. Or, you you know, you get the gnats that want to dive bomb the salt in your eyes. Yeah, no, and that's not okay. So I, you know, relatable. Um, no, there are strategies that everyone figures out. Um, I mean, because it really hurts when those things cut you. Like, it's like the paper cut from hell. And when you have a thousand of them coming at your face pretty much nonstop for months, like, you got to figure something out. Yeah, they remember. did not talk about that during training on that one. <laughs> I remember when I figured that out, and I remember comparing it to bamboo leaves. Because bamboo leaves are also yes. razor sharp. Yes. Still. And the problem is that bamboo leaves are actually, at least the bamboo, the, the domestic bamboo that I've encountered, is pretty short. You know, it's like a foot long, but the, the corn leaves are like, Two and a half feet long. Yeah, they have a really long reach. Yeah, um, and job. so this comes down to farmers and how they space their row crops. Because not all of them are the same. Hmm. You can get into some where the spacing is so tight that you're like, wow, okay, I hate you. I hate you all. <laughs> I cannot get through this. This hurts. They're too close. Because when you get closer to the stock, the firmer the leaf is, mm-hmm. it's a little bit easier to push them out of the way when they're spaced farther apart and I can't remember I think it was like a 16 inch and a 24 inch rows bean fields can get lodged so some people will do what's called drilling the beans and then you're just like I can't walk through that fast oh and it's a no-till field which is great um no tilling no runoff no um it's a lot less chemicals, and you lose less topsoil. However, you can't walk through that. And when your job is supposed to be going to document, like, things that are eating it, and you can't even walk through the field because you're like, great, the farmer's going to hate me because I'm stepping on it. Like, okay, this is no win. <laughs> this is an extraordinarily frustrating. Nobody talked about this in wildlife classes. Like, what do you do when you're in a farmer's farm, like, in his field? And... It's drilled, but you need to respect the property, but you still have to get your job done. What do you do? Go. You tiptoe through the soybean tulips, and you do not kill the farmer's beans. Because that will ensure that you are never allowed back on that property. And when you're working in states where it's almost all private property, (laughs) tiptoe very gently and very quickly. (laughs) You did it. You did it. Yes, yes, yes. But, um, yeah. I don't even know where I was going with that anymore. You don't have to be going anywhere. Bean fields. (laughs) However, I am going to steer us towards a particular end. Do you have, like, a favorite wildlife story? Like, we're all sitting around, Sharon and Brewski, you're with your other fellow biologists, and you're just like, just one time. (laughs) After 20 years? I mean, a lot of my work was in the backcountry. You kind of have to pick a genre. Which is fair, but in this venue, you're talking of. So what? What a one of, and I haven't told this story in a long time. It's not even a field story. This is one of those hit me. Hit <laughs> us. So um, I did my master's with coyotes and white-tailed deer in upstate New York, um, and so I was estimating the abundance, so the population size of coyotes using sound. So I would set off a howler. It was a coyote call that I spliced together. Yay, audio. Because um, I'm also an acoustic biologist in a really weird way because I did my master's modeling sound. I have a friend who did that. Hi, Dustin. <laughs> so we essentially did bird point counts, but with coyotes. Which oh. had never really been done before, and it freaked a lot of the terrestrial biologists out if they didn't come from the bird world. So a couple of people on my committee are like, what are you doing? 
Like, no, it's a point count, but with big hairy things instead of little tiny feathered things, it'll work. Alice. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> physics. This is first order physics. We can model sound attenuation. We have the software to implement like landscape scale, vegetation, and terrain. It'll be fine. So I had fourteen technicians. I had fourteen working for me. Yes, it was epic. Um, and so all of our work was at night. But we also had a day job, so we were trying to do two sides. So it was a diet study. So during the day, some of my crews were out there collecting scat for coyotes. And then during the night, they would shift over and do these howling surveys. And they did them all over the entire state of New York. And New York is huge. Upstate is huge. goes from the Adirondacks up uh, Lake Champlain up in Canada all the way across um, Lake Erie Canal. Runs the entire length. Goes all the way out to Buffalo. Um all the way down to the Allegheny Plateau and those mountains that run into Pennsylvania. Uh, it's a huge state with a whole diversity of landscapes. I think more than most people realize. But when I had 14 young humans, <laughs> young biologists in training, running amok at night, setting off a howler that was running at like 105 decibels. Wow. That's the average call peak volume of a coyote. So I had to get everything right because it was modeling sound attenuation over space. And so I had all that to say, I had these students out there running like everywhere. And after I had already been doing this in the field for 10 years, so I went back to graduate school after about a decade. Um, so I was a little bit older and wiser, and I had a whole bunch of ranging from 20, 21 up to maybe 24 was the oldest. Three separate crews running night and day all over Hell's Half Acre. I had housing for them during the daytime stuff, but at night it was like, Run your surveys, camp wherever you are at dawn. <laughs> Map it out. Ooh. Right? And so a little bit of a taskmaster. Um, I was like, I figured this out and so will you. I hired you because I have full confidence in your abilities <laughs> to do these surveys, get the data done, and find some place to sleep. You're one of those. <laughs> oh, I am so one of those. At that point, I'm... No. <laughs> uh, no, I might be a little bit more gentle about that. But honestly, they were there to be trained. They were there to learn. Holy Hannah, did some of them sass me. And this is getting to the point of this entire story is I was going every three days I shifted crews. So I was going from Livingston Manor down in the Catskill Mountains up to the Adirondack Mountains to my um, field crew up there and then out to Basin, New York, out in the Lake Plains in farm country. So every three days I was shifting. So I wasn't actually living in the apartment that I had been paying rent on for almost four months straight. To keep these guys, to give them the support that they needed. So when one of them decided to text me a very sassy message, this is like, right, like, I just gotten, like, my first, like, smartphone before this. So, like, the texting thing was still new. Wow. Um, and so I got notorious because phone calls wouldn't go out to a lot of these areas, but I knew they could get a text, and so they couldn't check their email because, no, we were in wife. I may have still been dialed up in a couple of areas, but a text message go through. So I was notorious <laughs> for sending these text messages that would have like 10 parts. <laughs> it's 
time, and I'll be sitting there waiting for these things, and they're like, bing, right, and they're like, oh, okay, that's number five, <laughs> should be at least five more, because it's Sarah, and I was like, shut up, you guys, I'm not that old, it's just, there's a lot of information, and I need you to be safe, and know what's going on, and nobody has a telephone, because it won't go through, <laughs> um, and the libraries aren't open right now, so this is what we've got, bing, Bing! <laughs> so I didn't know this, but all of them thought that was the biggest joke. Um, I also, here's a side story, turned them into, because I had three crews, and then there was, like, a crew of, like, graduate students in Syracuse, New York, at um, the school. I turned them into, because <laughs> I wanted group cohesion, <clears throat> I had them doing um, ultimate frisbee training. So one of the first things that we did when I would show up at the field site is we all had to get into a big circle, and then we would throw the Frisbee in a circle between all of the people. So we had, like, three-ish people per crew, and then it was me, and sometimes a guest star would be there. But every time you threw the Frisbee, you would have to do a jump squat. So essentially a burpee. Um, And some of them hated me, but every time you threw it, right after you threw it, do it. So there was training, and they were learning to all hate me together. So I felt like that was a little bit of bonding. But I had four teams, and we named them after Harry Potter. So there was um, Slither Cues for Sarah Cues, um, Basin Puff, um, Hufflepuff. For um, what was the basin part? Um, that's the town. Oh, got the, it. And then it was um, for, uh, oh, yeah, the Catskills was Cat Claw. Ooh. For um, Ravenclaw, um, right, and then Gryffindor was ADK door. That's the the short code for the Adirondacks. But yeah, so I had four teams, and then at the end of the year, I hosted a big pizza party, and I made them all play Ultimate Frisbee to the death. Nobody died. It was fine. Um, But part of that, and I didn't realize, I don't know, so you're working nights, and I was working days. Because every time they would get pulled over by the cops or the sheriffs, I would have to get the phone call. And so, like, they would wake me up while I'm trying to do, like, day stuff. And I was like, no, just call me anytime. So I would, like, wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Like, so this survey was in front of one of the sheriff's deputies' houses. And his wife is not pleased that we're here. Oh, jeez. And she called her husband. So can you talk to him? Yes. So I would take the call, and this happened, like, a lot. And then there might have been a giant ant infestation of the hunting cabin they were in. And they to the point where they had to move all of their gear out. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. They had to move all of their um, stuff out of the house because these ants had erupted. And so they were living out of their cars for a couple of days. And they're like, what are we supposed to do? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> they figured it out. They figured it out. And they're like, but it's the cabinet. I'm like, I know, you're off the grid. You don't have any power. I bring you your water. It's a composting toilet that you don't take care of that I had to. So, yeah, I had to take care of their composting toilet every time I came up there, too. How much were you paying them? Some of them, it was $50 a week. Some of them were getting 2000 a month. So there was an internship. Um... And then, like, two levels of intern and then volunteer. Hmm. So different stipends for different levels. They were 
Uh, food was covered, and I also covered their housing, and I got them a field truck. I was relatively flexible about time off. So there was a giant ant infestation that took over the world and pushed them out of their house. But it was also six hours away. Like, I don't know what you want me to think. I, just, go, go yell at the ants. Maybe they'll listen. It doesn't sound like a can of rain. But we were renting the cabin from another graduate student, so I called him and I was like, uh... Apparently, there's an issue with the cabin, and as our landlord, I feel like it's your responsibility. No, he he went up there, and I don't know what he did, but he took care of it. But those my texts were like, "What do you want us to do?" And I'm like, from where I was, that was like one of the most ridiculous things that I had gotten. And I'm like, I don't. Stand on one foot, turn in a circle, and then do a dance. Like, I, I don't have anything helpful to tell you. Like, you just, I don't know. Go get a tent. You all have camping gear. You all go on epic adventures on your time off. Do not tell me that you cannot handle this. They also, meanwhile, got the truck stuck in a giant swamp that they should have drove, driven through and successfully hid that from me until the end of the year when they downloaded all their photos onto my hard drive. Yeah. Then I saw the photos, like, so what was that? Uh, yeah, we got out. Okay. Yeah, we didn't want to tell you. That might be a good thing. <laughs> and yet I see this photo, so you should do my job. <laughs> and then they took, like, glamour off. shots. Uh, like, hanging off the truck, like, look at that, it's axle deep. And I'm like, and also not appropriate. Yeah. Uh, I did have one tech that lost the keys running from a combine because he went out in this field to go get scat too close to harvest, and I told him not to do it. Well, he did it anyway, and it turns out that the combine was coming through the field to harvest it right then. So he ended up running away from the combine to get out of the field after I told him, it's harvest time. You need to check with the farmers and find out when they're going to be working it because you don't want to be out there. Well, he didn't. So now there's like a combine coming down the road. So he's like running and he loses the truck keys. So not only did he not listen to me, he went out there. He didn't talk to the farmer. Could have gotten himself extremely injured by running from a combine, and then he lost the truck keys. So he had to call me, because I had the backup set. That was one of the best conversations, because my mother was out visiting, and she's like, now Sarah, you were young once. Mother, I was never that young. (laughs) I was born an adult. It's like Benjamin Button over here. You've met my father. (laughs) You divorced my father. <laughs> Do you know how self-reliant we are and how stubborn? She's like, well, okay. I'm like, right. Now I'm going to go talk to my employee. But the whole point of that was at one point I got so frustrated with some of their, like, low-level whining. 
that I wrote them an email with like the week's tasks because I had to go through everything and I set up and I looked at the weather. So depending on the weather and the terrain and where they were, I was actively changing where their surveys were to maximize how many we could get done throughout the state. So they would just move. I'm like, nope, you're going 50 miles that way. Just go. Drive west. And I will go to this point. I'm looking at the radar right now. The thunderstorm's going in the other direction. That area, you can work the whole night. Go. No, I literally had them putting their data into a folder on each one of those um, computers. It was a folder that was literally titled, Sarah Wants to Graduate. So that when they went to enter their data, they were just very aware of what the directive was and why. Why we were actually working on this project. Yes, science Pittman Robertson funding, public access to data, wonderful. Sarah wants to graduate, and we're going to do this because I have one field season, and you're mine. <laughs> and when you sign that contract of employment, you better you sold your soul. So I did have them sign a contract of expectations because oh, I am my father's daughter. Oh no, it went through everything, and so they're like, oh. But I'm like, and I'm also giving you this shirt that clearly identifies you as a university employee. So when you're knocking on doors and they come out with a shotgun, they will know that you're an undergrad. They do that sometimes. And to leave you alone, which that did help. Because sometimes they accidentally parked in front of the farmer's gates after they told them not to. And then the farmer went out and got their tractor and just pushed the truck out of the way. And I was like, actually, that's fair enough. And he didn't really scratch the paint. So it's fine. Fair enough. You guys, don't ever do that again. And wear your shirts. But we lead such rich, interesting lives. <laughs> the entire point of that was I sent them an email one of those weeks after there was just an excessive amount of whining. And I'm like, you know what? I haven't slept in days. And you people are waking me up at 2 o'clock in the morning because you're pissing off the sheriff's wives. And then there was the thing with the pony. I should show you the photo of the pony. We had to rescue the pony in the middle of the night because it was wandering around the streets in the Adirondacks. So I had to go and fashion a pony harness because we can't get it in the truck. So I had to fashion a pony harness off of these um, um, ratchet straps. <laughs> Because it was like the start of the surveys, and I'm looking at my watch, and I'm like, you guys, we have surveys, and I had three young people looking at me going, but it's a pony. I'm like, oh, these are competing values. Sarah's either going to support science and do the deed or kill the pony. That was essentially the choice that I was faced with. So I'm looking at these, my, my employees, and I'm looking at this pony, and I'm looking at them, and I'm Oh, we're getting nothing done tonight. Except we're going to save the pony. <laughs> and they're like, well, none of us have worked with horses. I'm like, that's not a horse. It's a Shetland pony. It comes up to maybe your thigh. And they're like, well, but you grew up around horses. <laughs> what do you mean? So you should go catch it. <laughs> so not only are you going to derail all of my surveys for this night to go save this pony, you're not even going to get out and save the pony. You're going to make me go save the pony. Come on, you're the boss. <laughs> right. So I'm like, you do understand that I am your boss. And they're like, yeah, you're going to go save the pony, right? Okay. 
I love you guys. I hate you guys. Fine, give me the strap. <laughs> so there is a photo because they're freaking millennials. Of course, they got out there and photo documented everything while I'm trying to get this freaking pony out of the middle of the road. So there is a photo and they posted it to Facebook because that's what you do. And I'm like, you guys are awesome. This is great. I had to walk that pony. So what I told them was, I will go chase that pony. Your job is to go door to door and find out where that pony came from. So you have your radio and I have mine. I will go chase Mr. Henry. I can't remember what the pony's name was. They had to go door to door. And they're like, but I'm like, no, you already told me that I have to go save the ponies. So I'm going to go be the pony whisperer with the ratchet straps in the middle of the night in the road in the Adirondacks where we don't get any cell service. You take that radio. Now go door to door. But it's late at night. Yes, it is. They did find... The owners were gone. They found the neighbors. They knew exactly which house it was because apparently the pony had a history of busting out. So we had like a rebel pony. Um, We couldn't get in the truck, so I had to walk it. I can't even remember how far. It took a while. I had to walk it all the way back down the hill. And as soon as we pulled into its driveway, its horse buddies started running and neighing. And the pony was like, hello, friends. And you're a jerk. You're a pony jerk. <laughs> you busted out of the pokey just so you can get put back in. You are not lonely. You have friends. And clearly they're excited to see you. So I'm going to put you back in. So we put it back behind his little electric fence. I don't know whether they're short or not. Put the pony back. And we left a note on whatever paper we could find because I wasn't going to use a data sheet. No. And left it tacked to their door that said, we found your pony out while we were doing research. We think he's okay. And then we just, like, left it. I'm like, all right, can we go back and do the surveys now? So apparently I earned a whole lot of street cred. I had in the boss that was willing to destroy an entire night's worth of research and staff time. But the pony was alive. We walked it home. The neighbors were happy. Um, the rebel pony was put back. But, yes, there was an excessive amount of whining. Going back to the original point of that story, the one time, so I gave them their week's work. But at the bottom, I put P.S. And then I listed every single scenario that I had been in over the last... 10 years in the field to essentially say, I know how hard the job is and I know how strange the things are that go wrong. But it was, so it ended up being the the PS was longer than the email itself and apparently was so classic that it it got passed around with all the undergrads when they got back to school Um, because it was like, I can't, I need to look that thing up because it went on and on. And I was like, yeah, so, you know, I just like to reflect because I think that was the exact 10th anniversary of when I started, Hmm. um, was when I was out there with those guys. It's like, so I've been doing this for 10 years and I have to say that it's been rewarding, but there have been so many times when there have been so many moments when you're just like, 
You don't know what else to say except for, what was that? Oh, that hurt. Oh, that's going to take a while. <laughs> well, that's going to leave a mark. Wait, how hot is that fire? Wait, is that fire? What broke? How many miles is it to the next dirt road? Do we have any water left? Did someone forget the gas can? Do we have a shovel? So it was a PS that was like, they will tell you it's four pages long, but of every single strange scenario I'd found myself in. And then it hit send. So apparently they all thought it was freaking hysterical, except for one, my most sensitive one, who's like, so yeah, I took that like as a giant. I've been through everything. You have nothing on me, so shut up and go back to work. It's like, well, like maybe 10% that. But mostly I'm like, you guys have gone through three months. Just wait until you've accumulated a decade worth of stories. Because things are going to get weirder. You're going to end up in the middle of the night with a pony. Or you're going to drop your keys down a grate. In the Albany Mall parking lot. And you know what you're going to do? You got three technicians. They're strong. They're young. Pick the grade up. Because <laughs> I was like, you've got to be kidding me. We have to be at this field site. And they fell out of my pocket and they went right down the grate. And I was like, you guys, right now. We're picking it up. So there is another picture that's on Facebook of me coming out of a sewer manhole. Because... Yeah. Touching. No, I went down there. I was like, no, you three, mm, help me now. And they're like, what? I'm like, we're picking up this manhole cover because we got to get the keys back because Sarah wants to graduate. Let's focus. So, yeah, there's a picture of me coming out of this manhole with my keys going, ah, because <laughs> they have to photo document everything. So many great things. But my, yeah, when I sent them that, I was like, no, I'm just saying, like, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Just wait. Can you find that email for me? You can try. You should, because I would love to, like, make just, like, a post on Rogoski, like, on the blog, and just be like, emails notorious, like, at 2 a.m., <laughs> because that's when I was having to stay up to <laughs> sleep deprived biologist <laughs> yes. via email, love Sarah Hansen. <laughs> that's, and I was, at some point, because they had all sassed me so much, one of them was wonderful, they would clean the field house, and they even went and got a whole bunch of flowering wildflowers, which were, like... God only knows what, but they would leave it in a little, like, I don't know, ketchup jar vase on the kitchen table for me. Um, so, yeah, when I went over to that one, I was like, oh, and then I would go over to the other one where I was cleaning their toilet. And then the other one where I literally had to clean everything so that I could have a place to work. It's just a wide variety, and I love them all. <laughs> yeah, I can find that email. There's yeah. a certain point at 2 a.m. where I'm like, no. I now, have point break. Thank you very Now much. I'm going to rant at you. <laughs> Here is everything that I have gone through. How many pages of PS do you have? And that is not a one-upman. That is, wait your turn. Because you will have it. Now is not the time. Um, okay, so... Before we we're, we're over our time now, but this has been fucking wonderful. Sorry, I will maybe edit that. This is now it's explicit. Yeah, now now it's explicit. Um, this has been wonderful. Do you want to set yourself up for another episode? Like, what else would you like to talk about? I can talk about 
a million different things. Okay, then I will take a different tack, and do you want to make a shout-out to someone? Anyone at all? Like, take us out with a catchphrase, I don't know, or... Uh, 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 recycle or something. <laughs> well, reduce, reuse, and recycle. I could, I could, I could sing you the what is it? Save the earth. It's our job because it's our planet. That's a song we wrote in sixth grade. Cute for the Save the Earth Club. Oh, you had to Save the Earth Club. I was in Daisies. Yeah, no, that's what we did. Oh wait, in sixth grade? Sixth grade? Oh, what was I? Was... You shouldn't have been in Daisy. No, did, that was, oh, I thought we meant when you were six years old. No, no, was... no, in sixth grade. No, I got kicked out of the Girl Scouts. Oh, I made it all the way to my gold award, and you know who cares? Not a single person. Oh, that's because it's not an Eagle Scout award. Oh, that's just a whole other episode. So, Sarah, why don't you take us out? Um, we have another episode will be coming. I am sure. I would love to talk about deer migration. Ooh. And habitat conservation, because we're doing a ton of work. Okay, cool. It's awesome stuff. It involves multiple partners. I'm like, I, I, I am, I am, I am going in with a butterfly biologist. We're going to, like, do a video. Holy crud. Right? Big Game Bio talks to the butterfly lady. Is she is she from the west side? Is she from around the She Indian? is. Is she from the Her um, name the is Anne. The, the NRB? Yeah. The 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 mothership? Yeah, like down at the like the yeah. joint the joint base. No, she's not JBLM. Yeah. So that's well, joint base Lewis McCord. No, she's at the Natural Resource Building, her headquarters. Her okay. name is Anne. Okay. She's right. a badass. Alright, I I I think I've applied to one of her. No, the, the deer bio and the butterfly bio are like twinsies. She tells me all of the awesome stories of coyotes um like consuming deer in her yard. It's like the only the only insect ecologist that's going to be like, oh, Sarah, you should hear about this. Oh, it's amazing. We get along like gangbusters. We're we're totally insects. Well, we will address that in another episode. So this has been a fabulous episode of Rock Osby Podcast. Sarah Hansen, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. And this is wonderful. Yeah, and we will see you again for another episode. All right, sounds good. Goodbye, everyone.